Welcome back to Psych Your Crime. I'm your host, Nicole Mann. And like always, I'm so happy to have you joining me. Um, I see we have new listeners from around the world. We have people from Greece, India, Czechoslovakia, Sweden joining us. Uh, Welcome. I'm so excited. And I say this at the beginning of every episode, but I really, really mean it. Um, If it wasn't for you guys, I would definitely not be doing this. I really thought that maybe just my parents would listen and that would be it. I absolutely didn't think I would be doing it for this long. I never thought the people from all over the world would be listening. Every time I check my demographics and I see someone from a new country has joined, I'm super excited. So thank you so much. Um, I'm especially excited to find out that I have listeners from Sweden. Those of you who are not aware, um, before COVID, I was interested in doing the social work exchange, the international social work exchange. And Sweden was a country that I had signed up four and then COVID happened and so there's no social work exchanging happening right now because we are in a global pandemic so I'm super excited to hear that we do have people from Sweden listeners from Sweden so actually I'm super excited to find out that I have listeners from anywhere but yes I um drowned much of my sorrows um over (laughs) the pandemic watching a Scandinavian noir And uh, one of my more embarrassing moments was watching a show and it wasn't until the last five minutes that I discovered I was not in fact watching a Swedish television show, but a Norwegian one. So I don't know if that's like the American people's ignorant version of thinking all Scandinavian people sound the same. I thoroughly do take onus as embarrassing possibly even an asshole moment but yes i am very much more acutely aware in the subtle linguistic differences between the scandinavian languages now since i watched you know things from finland and iceland as well now so but yes that was not one of my greater moments but welcome anybody from anywhere in the world i'm so happy to have you here anyway this week we are looking at the case of Beverly Alouette Um, and also I just want to remind you the merch store is open I'm going to be adding some more stuff in the next couple of weeks I have a couple designs I've been working on we're actually going to be taking that Christmas hoodie Christmas sweater out so this is going to be your last chance in the next two weeks by the end of January we're going to have that gone we're going to have some new stuff in obviously we have to do some Valentine's Lonely Heart stuff that we're going to have up in the next week Um, so get in there if you want to get that Christmas hoodie it's going to be gone by the end of January uh Patreon um we're going to be updating that more and over on the YouTube we will definitely be doing that bracket tournament to see if any states can unseat Florida man it's having the dumbest um people dumbest criminals in the United States um we just moving it back we want to make sure that it's really really good for you and I'm contemplating possibly maybe going on Twitch not sure Uh, reach out leave comments if you would like to engage and listen to some true crime on twitch just have some general conversation just let me know um so anyway let's get started with this week's uh crime so child murder remains a rare crime generally in the united kingdom there are between 20 and 40 homicides a year of the five to six million children ages 0 to 14. For comparison, there are between 
100 to 200 children killed each year in automobile accidents. But despite its rarity, and these patterns are emerging from the latest research, which can help track down predators and help parents protect their families. Forensic experts begin building a profile of killers by first looking at the age of the victims. If a child older than five goes missing and is feared dead, it's highly likely the perpetrator is someone outside of the family. A recent survey of a decade of conservative child homicide, consecutive child homicides in England by Colin Pritchard and Tony Sayer from Bournemouth University was published in the British Journal of Social Work. The study found that homicidal assailants of children younger than five are much more likely to come from within the same family. The contrasting profiles of intrafamilial as opposed to that of extrafamilial killers are vital clues de deployed by police during a search. For example, in the Pritchard and Sayer study entitled Exploring Potential Extrafamilial Child Homicide Assailants in the UK and Estimating Their Homicide Rates, none of the extrafamilial assailants killed a child under the age of five. In contrast to this picture of extrafamilial killers, previous research confirms the majority of assailants in child murder cases, particularly those below five years of age, are in fact the victim's parents. Most are mothers, often suffering from mental illness, such as forms of postnatal psychosis. Interestingly, all natural fathers who killed their children followed, by, followed the act by committing suicide. So this is where the research we talked in the past when we discussed family annihilators, this is where that research about family annihilators, all the research refers to family annihilators as male because female family annihilators always have some kind of mental illness, usually some sort of, um, so some form of um, post um, prenatal birth um, issues, whether it is, like they said here, postnatal psychosis, postpartum depression. It's some type of mental health issue that is a postpartum issue that causes them to commit these murders, whereas men don't have underlying mental health issues that are driving their family annihilator tendencies. And that's why most male family annihilators also go on to commit suicide. Um, most, not all, but all the research calls family annihilators male because they're pejoratively male. Only a handful did not have underlying, a handful of the women family annihilators did not have underlying um, mental health issues that were usually tied to postpartum issues. And that's why you very rarely ever find a female family annihilator because most of them have untreated mental health issues, whereas the men, it is coming from a completely different place. Of the five extrafamilial killers investigated in Pritchard and Sayers' research, all were males aged 19 to 42 and had multiple past convictions. One was termed a multi-criminal child sex abuser, while the remaining four were violent multi-criminal child, uh, multi child sex abusers as well. So they were all the same thing multi-criminal child sex abuser, they, they were all the same thing. Pritchard and Sayer argued that this high level of previous criminality reflects chaotic backgrounds. Of the five extrafamilial killers, four had some known previous contact with their victims, but were not in any type of familial relationship. Pritchard and Sayer emphasized that extrafamilial doesn't mean totally unknown to the victim, like an absolute stranger, as in completely random killing of uh, the UK's Sarah Payne. 
Often the child is familiar with their assailant. In the case of in the UK of Ian Huntley, who killed Jessica Chapman and Holly Wells. Huntley's partner was then a teaching assistant at the school where he was a caretaker, which meant he was trusted by these children. A study entitled Sexually Motivated Child Abduction uh, by Kathleen Hyde and Eric Beauregard and Wade Myers from the University of South Florida and Simon Fraser University, British Columbia, confirms two main subsets of offenders. One group have sexually sadistic urges and are aroused and gratified by suffering and killing, but this group is distinctive from sex murderers, who kill primarily to avoid apprehension and not for gratification. Published in the academic journal Victims and Offenders, this review conducted in the United States also confirms that police can infer a lot about who committed the crime just from the age of the victim. When a child is younger than five, the suspect who is equally likely to be male or female is the most probably from within the same family, not motivated by the urge to molest and tends to kill using their hands. When the child is between the ages of 5 and 12, the suspect is most often male, a close friend or a stranger, sexually compulsive, and killing using means such as strangling. Finally, if the child victim is between 3 and 17, the suspect is most likely to be a close friend or stranger, sexually driven and killing with weapons. Hyde and colleagues also report on most complete, the most complete previous study of sexually motivated child abduction murders. An analysis of 621 cases representing 44 states across the United States that showed that in 44% of the cases, the victim was deceased within one hour after they were abducted. So yeah, that first 24, that's huge. So don't wait 24 hours to report your child missing. That is an absolute fallacy and a misconception. Within three hours, 74% of victims were dead. Fast action in missing children cases become vital because data suggests there is typically a two-hour delay after a child is reported missing. Heed, Beauregard, and Mayers also report location patterns now play a crucial role in the way forensic science is used to apprehend culprits. They report studies which conclude the majority of cases, 72%. The radius from the body, the recovery site to murder scene is less than 200 feet. The distribution was different when it came to journey from the initial contact setting to the murder site. 31% traveled 0 to 200 feet, whereas 43% trekked 1.5 to 12 miles. Christine Gregor, an attorney general from Washington State, reports that killers are usually at the initial contact site for legitimate reasons. They either lived in the area or were engaging in some routine. She also reports most child abduction murders are opportunistic. Only in 14% in of cases was the victim picked out because of some physical characteristic. The initial contact site is within a quarter mile of the victim's last known location in 80% of cases. Gregor explains in her paper entitled Case Management for Missing Children and Homicide Investigations that in only 9% of cases is the body openly placed to facilitate discovery. She therefore wants searchers placed at intervals approximately equal to the height of the victim. In our clinical experience, these geographical patterns contribute enormously to the emotional distress for police involved in these cases. They always know time is running out fast, yet they may have extensive areas to search. But eventually, most frequently, the child is still discovered very close to home. 
Gregor argues parents need to be most aware that their children are not immune from abduction simply because they're playing close to where they live. And in fact, data suggests that well over half of abductions that led to murder took place within three city blocks of a victim's home and approximately one third within a half of a block. Also, given how common child battering is, according to the authors of the most recent and definitive study on the subject entitled Who Kills Children? Reexamining Evidence, just published in the British Journal of Social Work, it remains an enigma just how rare child homicide remains. The authors of the research, Colin Pritchard, Jill Davey, and Richard Williams from Bournemouth University, point out it's estimated that 11 children per day are seen in the hospital um, EU uh, emergency rooms up and down the United Kingdom with suspected physical child abuse. So there's only one death for every 188 possible abuse-related emergency room admissions of children under four years every year. Pritchard and colleagues argue these statistics indicate the exceptional nature of those who actually kill children. Beauregard, Hugh, and Myers describe a personal personality profile of a typical extrafamilial predator, shy, anxious, reserved, experiencing feelings of inferiority, taking refuge in fantasy, where they become omnipotent and powerful. But the more they take flight in the imagination, the more real it becomes. This imaginary world gets so familiar, it's inevitably enacted. As a result of this secret inner world, family, neighbors, and friends never guess who is capable of such a crime. And now, a word from our sponsor. If you have a business, you need a website. What's the best way to get a website up and running? Choose a website hosting company that makes it simple, like Pair Networks. Pair has over 20 years of experience managing the entire digital ecosystem for thousands of online businesses all around the world. Pair makes it easy for you with do-it-yourself website building tools and features, including simple drag-and-drop page design. And they have guaranteed U.S.-based support technicians ready to help you whenever you need it, 24 hours a day, 365 days a year. Right now, when you sign up with Pair Networks, you'll receive one free month of web hosting. See for yourself how easy it is to build your website for free. Visit pair.com free to get your first month of website hosting for free by using the code QUICKSTART. That's pair.com free. Promo code QUICKSTART to get started today. And now, back to our show. Now, Beverly Allette, she is kind of different. And the reason that I picked this is because I kind of wanted to show you guys how profilers work. Now, as I read about Beverly, you're going to see that the profiling of child killers doesn't really fit in here because this isn't like a situation where they went out and they snatched a child off the street. But there's other aspects of the profile of a of a child killer that absolutely fits her to a T. So there's aspects about profiling that as like those of you who may have ever watched Criminal Minds know, things are kind of hit or miss. So like the personality about the person, you make it dead on, but the aspects of them being a child killer and, and this, that, and the other about child killers, that may not fit even though she is definitively a child killer 
their characterization of child killers doesn't fit her, but when they break down the type of personality a child killer will have, that completely fits her. She actually falls into another type of killer. She actually suffers from something else, and we'll get to that later on. Beverly Allett was born on the 4th of October, 1968, and grew up in the village of Corby Glen near the town of Grantham. She had two sisters and a brother. Her father, Richard, worked in an off-license, which is like a booking uh, for people in the United States. Betting is illegal except for like at dog tracks, which are starting to go out of favor here, and horse tracks. So apart from the track, betting in the United States and, and the lottery, which I don't understand why it's totally okay to gamble with the lottery, but aside from places like Atlantic City or like putting legal betting in like Jersey, like Atlantic City, Las Vegas, aside from that, betting is pretty much illegal in the United States. Um, an off-license, my understanding is an off-license is um, non-licensed betting. Um, so her father worked at a non-licensed betting parlor. Her mother was a school teacher. Alette attended Charles Reed Secondary Modern School, having failed the test to enter Kestevin and Grantham Girls School. Alette exhibited some worrying tendencies extremely early on. While growing up as one of four children, she started wearing dresses with casts over them so that she could draw attention to herself without actually allowing herself to be examined to determine if she'd ever broken anything. She became overweight while she was an adolescent and she became increasingly attention-seeking, often showing aggression towards other people. She spent considerable amounts of time in the hospital seeking medical attention for a string of physical ailments, which culminated in the removal of a perfectly healthy appendix. This was incredibly slow to heal as she insisted on interfering with her surgical scars. Wow, that is severe among Chowson. She's also known to self-harm and had to resort to doctor hopping. As medical practitioners became familiar with her attention-seeking behaviors, she would just move to the next doctor. She went on to train as a nurse and was suspected of odd behavior such as smearing feces on the walls in a nursing home where she was training. Her absentee level was so exceptionally high the result of, as the result of her string of bizarre illnesses. Her boyfriend at the time said that she was aggressive, manipulative, and deceptive. She claimed a false pregnancy as well as a sexual assault before the end of their relationship. Despite her history of poor attendance and successive failure of her nursing exams, she was taken on as a temp on a six-month contract as the chronically understaffed Grantham and Kestevin Hospital in Lincolnshire in 1991 where she began work in Children's World fo Children's Ward 4. When she started, there were only two trained nurses on the day shift and one on nights, which might explain how her violent attention-seeking behavior went undetected as long as it did. Now, this is part of the issue where uh, profiling may not work. She clearly has Munchausen, um, this is a Munchausen by proxy type of situation. Um, so the child killer thing doesn't necessarily fit here because her victims are purely victims of opportunity. So wouldn't have mattered. She just happened to be on the children's ward. Had she been an adult ward or an elderly ward, those would have been who her victims were. On February 21st, 1991, 
seven-week-old Liam Taylor was admitted to the ward, the ward for possible pneumonia after Alette had reassured his parents that he was in capable hands and would be well cared for, they went home for the night. When they returned the next morning, they were informed that he had suffered respiratory problems during the night, but that he had recovered and appeared to be doing well. The next night, Alette volunteered for extra night duty. At one point during the night, she was left alone with Liam, and moments later, Alette summoned the code team. He had stopped breathing. Despite the efforts of the team, Liam had suffered brain damage and was being maintained on life support. Knowing that he would never recover, his parents made the heart-wrenching choice to remove him from life support. His death was listed as heart failure. Even though her fellow nurses were confused about the failure of the apnea monitors to alarm them when Liam stopped breathing, Alette was never questioned. Two weeks later, just two weeks, 11-year-old Timothy Hardwick, who suffered from cerebral palsy, was admitted after suffering an epileptic seizure. Alette volunteered to care for him. Within a few moments of being left alone in her care, his heart stopped. And again, despite the efforts of the code team, they were unable to revive him. His death was attributed to his epilepsy, even though no obvious cause of death was found. Look, I'm going to tell you right there, that makes me angry because I have epilepsy is controlled through medication. My grandmother had it as well. And it's absolutely insane that they're not even going that they didn't even check into it they didn't even look into it because he had epilepsy so they're just like up oh, it was the seizure yeah it's whatever like that's just absolute insanity like i've had some severe seizures and at no point has anyone ever been like oh you know it's the seizure dude whatever don't stitch up her face like the seizure like no you still check and be positive because the trigger the seizure could have just because you have epilepsy that doesn't mean another underlying condition may not have actually triggered a seizure so yeah that's absolutely infuriating that's up there with oh you're overweight so all of your health issues are because you're fat so i'm not even going to try and find out what the hell is wrong with you and possibly keep you from dying on March 3rd, 1991, one-year-old Kaylee Desmond was admitted to Ward 4 for a chest infection. Alette was assigned as her nurse. She was well on the road to recovery when five days later, she inexplicably went into cardiac arrest. She was successfully resuscitated and transferred to another hospital in Nottingham. While she was being examined, the physicians noted puncture mark under her armpit and an air bubble. It appeared to be an accidental injection and so was never investigated. Dude, there's no accidental injection injections on babies. They're babies. You know how difficult it is to inject a baby, period, screaming and flailing all over the place? So, yeah. Who accidentally injects a baby with an air bubble? That's ludicrous. On March 20th, 1991, five, the, a five-month-old was admitted for bronchitis. Shortly before he was to be discharged, he was taken care of by Alette. He was nearly comatose, and when his blood was checked, he was found to have a high level of insulin. He would suffer from the same symptoms three more times before he was finally transferred to the hospital at Nottingham. When he arrived at the hospital, his blood was checked, and he was again found to have a high level of insulin. The nurse was that was sent with him in the ambulance was Beverly Alette. 
Miraculously, he survived. Insulin poisoning is no joke. Um, there was a time in the 80s where multiple people murdered their wives, using uh, their diabetic wives, using an overdose of insulin. So it's not a joke. And there was a time in the 80s that was fashionable to regulate your weight using insulin. So yeah, and it became dangerous for a couple people. That's why it stopped being a thing, using insulin, especially as expensive as insulin is now, is no longer fashionable to try and use insulin to regulate your weight since you could kill yourself and you would be a super giant asshole as expensive as it is right now. Um, next, we have up. Sadly, no one was suspicious enough to connect all the dots. She was continuously left free to continue wreaking havoc on all these poor defenseless babies. March 21st, 1991, two-year-old Yik Hong Chon was admitted to Ward 4 after falling from a window and suffering a skull fracture. Okay, now this child has been traumatized enough. While he was being cared for by Alette, his oxygen levels dropped dangerously low, not once, but twice. He was transferred to a larger hospital in Nottingham. His symptoms were attributed to, of course, you know, your head injury causes you to lose oxygenation. On April 1st, 1991, two-month-old Becky Phillips was admitted for a stomach virus. While being cared for by Alette, she began exhibiting symptoms of hypoglycemia. She was examined and finding nothing wrong, Becky was sent home with her mother. During the night, she went into convulsions, and when her parents contacted a physician, they were told she probably had colic. She died later that night. Colic? Colic. She went into convulsions. Okay, colic... <sighs> Okay, sorry. I just kind of slammed my hand on my table. Dude, like, you give your kid gripe water for colic. There's all kinds of things for colic. But at no point when you call a doctor and are like, hey, my child, my baby just went into convulsions. Should a doctor be like, it's colic. Colic does not cause convulsions. Like, I feel like instead of just this... Ugh, Every single doctor that came into care with these children should have also been brought up on malpractice charges. Like, what the hell? Like, what doctor, when presented with a baby who went into convulsions, is like, it's, 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 the, it's colic. I feel like this dude, like, I'm sorry. Like, what? Actually, I'm not sorry. Like, what the hell? Where? Ugh. It's hurting my brain. Seriously, it's hurting my brain. That's just stupid. Like, no. I feel like my cat would be disturbed and trying to help the child while the parents are, cry like, crying. And, like, I, I feel like my cat would be trying to take care of, the, like, just even my cat knows that's not colic. Like, I'm sorry. That, not, once again, not sorry. Why am I apologizing? That makes me angry. Ugh. Just, no. Absolutely not. Like, I have no words. Like, ugh. This is why people get so frustrated about doctors. They don't listen. As a precaution... Her twin sister, Katie, was admitted to the ward as well. Not long after being cared for by Alette, she stopped breathing and had to be resuscitated. Jesus. Two days later, she stopped breathing again, but this time she suffered permanent brain damage due to prolonged lack of oxygen. Lord. When she was transferred to another hospital, it was later found that her apneic spells had been the result of receiving insulin and potassium. Katie's mother, Sue Phillips, was so grateful to Alette for saving her baby that she asked her to be the child's godmother. Of course, 
she graciously accepted. Good Lord. Four more helpless victims fell prey to Aled, but it would be the death of 15-month-old Claire Peck that would bring the spree to an end. On April 22nd, Claire was admitted to Ward 4 following an asthma attack that required her to be put on a ventilator. After being left alone with the lead, she suffered cardiac arrest and had to be resuscitated. She was stabilized and then left alone with the lead again. Shortly thereafter, she suffered another heart attack. This time, doctors were not successful. When an autopsy was done, it was discovered that she had traces of longacane in her tissue, a drug that is given during cardiac arrest, but never to a baby. Alette had attacked 13 children, four fatally, over a 59-day period before she was finally brought up on charges. It was only following the death of Becky Phelps Phillips that the medical staff became suspicious of the number of cardiac arrests on the children's ward and police were called. It was found that Alette was the only nurse on duty for all of the attacks on the children and also had access to drugs. Four of Alette's victims had died. She was charged with four counts of murder, 11 counts of attempted murder, and 11 counts of causing grievous bodily harm. Alette entered pleas of not guilty to all charges, but on the 28th of May, 1993, she was found guilty on each charge and sentenced to 13 concurrent terms of life imprisonment, in which she is serving at Rampton Secure Hospital in Nottinghamshire. In the 2008 documentary Trevor McDonald made The Killer Nurse, Alette reportedly told close friends before trial that she would never go to prison. After one week in prison, she refused to eat or drink and was removed to a secure hospital. Two leading experts, forensic psychologist Jerry Coyd and criminologist Elizabeth Yardley, examined Alette's mental state when she was arrested and concluded that she was definitely not mentally ill and that she should be in prison not a hospital. Alette reportedly admitted to all 13 of her crimes in a failed application to remain at the secure hospital and permanently avoid prison. None of the families of Alette's victims have been told of her full confession in the failed application. Wow. So she confessed and they didn't tell any of the families, including the one that made her the godmother of her child. That's insane. Wow. On the 6th of December 2017, Mr. Justice Stanley Burton, sitting on the High Court of Justice in London, confirmed that Alette must serve the original minimum sentence of 30 years. It was reported that some of, the, of Alette's victims' families had previously mistakenly believed that the minimum had been set at 40 years. Alette's motives have never fully been explained. According to one theory, she showed symptoms of a fictitious she shown symptoms of Munchausen's. Now, some people do not believe Munchausen's is real. Munchausen's is very real, okay? It's in the DSMV-5. That means it's it's considered a clinical diagnosis. It's real. So when you see our, a lot of times people will say it's fictitious, that's because people consider it fictitious if you make things up. They, so yeah, a lot of people do not believe in Munchausen. So she really does. Um, this disorder, like, and as we know, she does have Munchausen. She has Munchausen by proxy. That's why she did what she did. Uh, she wanted, she's an angel of death. Uh, she wanted the adoration for bringing people back. So she caused babies to go into cardiac arrest so she can get the adoration from saving them, except there were four she wasn't able to save. And let's be honest, you can't really consider it saving if you put the majority of the people that you save into uh, brain, if they're brain dead. 
So what, two or three of those babies ended up brain dead? So did you really save them? No. So, you know, that's really what she wanted was the adoration and attention of saving the babies. And that is a form, being an angel of death, that is a form of Munchausen. It's like people with Munchausen and proxy, they get on, on the attention of being the parent of a child of an illness. So, yes. Um, so that is the case of Beverly Alouette. Um, next week, we are going to look at the case of an actual child killer, not someone who kills children, but a child who committed a murder. This is a very contentious case. It's a case of Eric Smith. He was 13 year old, 13 years old when he committed his crime. It was another child, a much a, a, a toddler, a much, much younger child, so a toddler. The issue is how children are treated in the United States that commit violent crimes. Um, state to state, it can vary. In this particular case, he is um, been fighting for parole uh, the whole time. So the question is, and has been and still is, do you put a minor who commits a murder when they are 13 in prison for life? At 13, do you have enough of an understanding of what you're doing? And do you have enough of an intent to really know uh, what you're doing and, and is your intention that vicious enough that they should be locked up and never see the light of day again. And um, it really speaks to how the American justice system treats children and does it create lifelong criminals because it doesn't rehabilitate them, rehabilitate them, it doesn't treat them, it just incarcerates them. So in the meantime, I hope you sleep better knowing the how and why people do such awful things. <laughs>